and welcome to Conversations with Tori Reed. Thank you for joining me today. I am your host, Tori Reed. Since this is our first episode, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm a producer, author, and the CEO of Victory and Noble, a storytelling company in Hollywood. I'm excited to collaborate with Los Angeles Review of Books to present this series of conversations with the leading talents, minds, and trendsetters in literature, entertainment, and the culture at large. And these conversations are motivated by my perennial concerns. I am a lover of living your best life and living it out loud. I want to know where dreams come from, how to give flight to the spirit, and why we aren't all busy living, loving, and glowing every day. Today, we're talking to our beloved Nikki Giovanni. Nikki Giovanni is arguably the greatest living American poet. I had the opportunity to visit with her at her office in Blacksburg, Virginia, on the campus of Virginia Tech, where she is a university distinguished professor. Nikki has won an unprecedented seven NAACP Image Awards, been nominated for a Grammy Award, and was named one of Oprah Winfrey's 26 Living Legends. Here are some of her thoughts on our current political climate, the global international African arts movement, and her report card to God about humankind. And when we were kids, the problem was jellyfish. That was our big thing, being stung by a jellyfish. When we were kids, the problem was segregation. I prepared many questions for Nikki, but I quickly discovered, can one really prepare for this national treasure? She walked into the room after we shared a warm smile and a big hug, and our conversation began while my sound mixer and cinematographer, Trevon Facey, was still setting up. We literally just jumped right in, talking about family and those she loves. So let's talk about family, because I know family is very important to you. Uh, you have a son. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know you have adopted children. I'm hoping I will be one of them. But, oh, absolutely, absolutely. But I know I met at the L.A. Times of uh, Festival of Books, Kwame Alexander. Oh, that's my literary son. Yes. I, that is definitely a son from another mother. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I met, very nice. Oh, man. I love him so very much. talented. Yeah. Um, so how has your family influenced you, inspired you through the years and now? Well, they're just nice people. You know, you have to be careful uh, I, I laughed about it, and I laugh about it a lot because my father was a fool, and I had to finally deal with the fact that, oh, he's a fool. And so my important, the important thing for my sanity is to get away from him. But I fortunately had a grandmother, and so I went to live with my grandmother. It made me sad, and, and, and I don't mind admitting it now at 76. It made me sad that I had to realize my mother chose my father over me because she should have gotten rid of him. She should have divorced him. She should have gone on. But she obviously loved him. So I had to, I'm an intelligent human being, so I had to say, oh, okay, mommy loves Gus. I called him Gus. My sister called him daddy. I didn't, Daddy's supposed to do better than what he was doing. But, okay, mommy loves Gus. I had to go to click. That doesn't mean she doesn't love me. But she made a decision, so I had to accept that decision. I had a great, my, my, my grandmother was a great woman. And my grandfather, John Brown, was, was a great grandfather. They had been married. They, they loved each other. And so what I know about love, I know from them, from watching them and from what they did taking care of and, and, and just treating me, that, that they welcomed me. They recognized me as not just a part of the family but as a little girl who needed something. And um, they were smart which was good. Both of them were smart, so whatever smarts I have, I got, 
through the Watson side of the family. And uh, right now, and, and uh, her name is Renee Watson. I don't know if you know Renee. She's a YA, YA re, uh, writer. Sounds uh, familiar. Her yeah, Pieces of familiar. Me. Yes, and, I've heard of, yes, of yeah, course. she's yes. great. But her name is Watson. Now, she grew up in, in Oregon. And she was dealing with her family, but a part of her family comes from Georgia. And so when I finally met her, I said, I think we're kin. (laughs) I'm going to take you as a cousin whether you're kin or not, so you're stuck with me. Because my my mother's name was Watson. And so the Watsons are coming from Georgia. So, you know, all of this, we all, as I said to the kids last night, there's only one race, and that's the human race. And hopefully we do a lot better than we've been than we've been doing. But just before I came to talk to you, my good friend, and I love him so much, uh, Jordan Holmes, has just been appointed by NASA to be artists in residence. And that means that NASA has said, we need an artist, which I've been saying to Dr. Bolden forever, and they do, we need more artists in space. We need an artist to look for aliens. And I said, Jordan, you know your work, because he's an engineer. You know what you're supposed to do, you know. I said, but let me just remind you of one thing. Somebody is watching us, and we are aliens. If you look at who we, the so-called human race, if you look at what we're doing, we are aliens, and you can't forget that. So all that you're looking at cannot be the sky. Some of it has to be right here. We are aliens. Now, you believe all of us are aliens, or there are aliens among us? I, I think that we are alien to that which exists above us. If we look at the sky being above us. We don't know if the sky is above or below us. There's just no way to know. I mean, we know that when we go up, we, we end up, you know, the, the rockets go up. But we don't really know. What, that, what does that mean to another life form? Is it below us or above us? It, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of aliens or another life form looking at us and saying what a pitiful bunch of people, what a pitiful situation the human race is and it doesn't get much more pitiful than donald trump i mean that that'll make just make you wake up in the morning and cry you just look at that and you think oh whatever it is that the human race is if this is the best it has to offer then it's good that the worm is coming well speaking of that it's a good segue in your last question uh with the los angeles review of books with patrick howell you said if god called me hey nikki it's god do you have a minute And, of course, you said you would have a minute for God if he said, well, you know I'm thinking about closing down planet Earth. I'm thinking about getting rid of human beings. What are your thoughts? And you said, I think we'd all be in trouble because you can't lie to God. I'd have to say, well, you know it hasn't worked. It's been several thousand years, and it hasn't worked. So maybe we need to shut this all down and start all over again. I agree with you, actually. I really do. <laughs> How would you start over again, and what would you tell God if he asked what is the first thing he should do? The first thing he should do is, is bring the sea urchin in to eat the cup. It's what's going, it's what's going on. And I don't mean any, uh, I'm not trying to be smarter, you know, but what I wish I could know is what he said, what God said to the dinosaurs. Because they, too, got to be ugly. You look at some of them, Tyrannosaurus Rex and stuff, you look at how ugly they were, and they had wars and everything. And I'm sure God and Mrs. God were sitting there thinking, this ain't working, so how do we take them down? They said, oh, let's, let's evolve the monkeys or the apes. Let's evolve one of these primates. So they did, and we killed off and got rid of the, what we're calling the dinosaurs. And we are not deserving 
of our position. So what are we going to do? Well, let, let's let's bring the the kelp in. I don't I don't know if Mrs. God likes kelp. I know I do. So she said, well, let them eat the kelp, and and the kelp are going to eat. Let them eat the urchin, and the urchins will eat the kelp. And then what will happen? Well, then send a, send a worm in and take care of that. So we don't know what's coming next, but I know we have not deserved the right. If we can leave children on the border and tell their mothers to drink water from a toilet, we do not deserve life. It was bad enough that we killed Jesus. It was bad enough that, that, that Pontius Pilate was a coward. And, and we know that Hitler was a coward, and we know that Donald Trump is a coward. They're all cowards trying to make other people do their jobs. But if we can leave those children, and now we have Epstein, who, God in heaven, I mean, it's unbelievable, is purchasing 14-year-old girls for whatever reason that that may be, then we don't deserve it. And and that, that can't be avoided. Everybody, oh, you know, you're being mean. I'm not being mean. I'm being, I'm being real. Because everybody, the two of us sitting here, were once 13, 14 years old. Yes. And so if we somehow got through that period without being sold or bought by an Epstein and put on a plane with a Donald Trump, because no matter what they say, Donald Trump hung out with Epstein. We know that. We know that Bill Clinton hung out with Epstein. These are things we know. We saw the pictures. So we know that whatever they were doing, the devil did it. Yes, you're right. And, and so something's got to happen, and, and I, I cheer for us. I, I wish us well. But we're not paying attention to the signs. He said, God gave no other rainbow sign. And no more water, the fire next time. And we've been having it, you know, where you are. California's been, been on fire, and it keeps coming. Yes. And it, it won't be the worst thing to lose Earth. I'll be gone, of course, because I'm 76. I'll be gone. <laughs> but no, we have to make a, a, a decision. And I don't think we've done a good job in making a decision that it is the human race and we are in this thing together and we have to work together. And as James Brown said, money won't change you, but time is taking you on. Get down with it. (laughs) (laughs) He did. Well, around the world, you're known as a master of expression, an activist, an educator. You're brilliant. You're masterful, you're iconic, just to name a few. I can go on and on. (laughs) But I want to know, how would you describe yourself? Honestly, I'm dutiful. And I come from an incredible people. The enslaved in America created a new cultural, we would say race, but that's not what we are, because it's all the same race, but we created a cultural community. And I don't think that anybody can be more proud of being a part of the black American community, because you look at what we did. We, we, are, we are just, we're an incredible people. We came here to be bothered with a language we didn't know, so we had to learn a language. But in learning a language, we also had to teach the Europeans, who have, the Africans were selling us, the Europeans were buying us. But for the Europeans to get any work out of us, they had to learn a language. They had to learn to talk to us, and we had to learn to talk to them. So what we call English is, of course, as you know, not English. It's American. We had to learn which, which weed could we pick and boil all day. We had to learn how to cook things. But mostly, and it's an amazing thing, of all of the spirituals, and there's some thousand spirituals or so, not one of them is mean. Not, not one of the spirituals 
it's threatening. Wow, you're right. All of the spirituals are about love. That's, mm-hmm. that's, we are a great people. And so there's no, I wake up in the morning, I'm glad that I'm not on the cooling board. When I wake up, I'm glad that, that I'm, I'm in the bed. But when I wake up in the morning and I think, God, I come from a great people. There's just no way not to feel good. There's just no way. And I, I'm a jazz fan. I love spirituals, mm-hmm. but I'm a jazz fan. How do we find a way to create that music? How do we find a way to take ourselves out of a, an incredibly bad situation and take another step? Well, we are climbing Jacob's Ladder. Every round goes higher, higher. We are great people. We are not the people that said, well, we are, we're tired of this, that, or the other, and we're going to beat you up. And we weren't afraid of white people. We said, no, we, we are going to show you that we're not afraid because our job, we, we, we are going to show you that we can take if you can give it, we can take it. But something, Sam Cook said that, didn't he? But a change has got to come. Yes. And so you have to love a, a, a Frederick Douglass or you have to love a Martin Luther King. You have to love a people that said, no, something's, it's time now for this change to come. So we're back to my worm. I don't know how they talk. I don't know what language they speak. I don't know how they communicate with each other. But I do know that they had a community. And I do know that they are not the people that went around. You know, you, you look at these white boys, and it bothers you. It has to bother you. And I said that last night because the majority of my audience last night for, for my youngsters at the Governor's School of White Boys, how can you be made to feel a coward? How can you be made to feel that you're afraid of some children coming across the border? What kind of sense? So when we look at them taking opioids and we look at, at the drug problems that we're having, you know that they've done things, they've been made to do things that they can't live with. And so uh, one of the girls, one of the questions that, that was, you know, how do we change the world? It was a question, you know, because you have a Q&A. Mm-hmm. How do we change the world? And I said, I have to honestly tell you, I don't know how to change the world, and I don't. I only know that I can't let the world change me. I have to stand up to be me, whatever that is. Now, it may be, and, and many a, a black man and woman has has paid that price, it may be that I'll be lynched. It may be that I'll be shot down at some point, that I'm given a, a poetry reading, that I'm, I'm Malcolm X and, and, and I'm, I'm given a speech and somebody was shooting. These are, these are things you know, but I know this. I can't let the world change me. And we don't want it to. I don't. We need you as you are. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. But, you know, this, I'm dutiful because we all have a duty. And we come from such a great people, and our people have paid such a price just to get here to 2019 or 2020. And I, I can't let them have paid that price, and then I'm going to chicken out. I'm going to say, well, I can't handle it. I'm going to be Ben Carson. I'm going to be working for Donald Trump. I'm, no, I, <laughs> no I, I, I can't be that. I have to be something better. Is that your favorite thing about yourself? I think the favorite thing about myself is that basically I'm pretty happy. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Well, yeah, it's, uh, we were at a conference, and, and one of the questions that I asked, I got asked at the conference, a girl said, a, a young woman said, well, why are you happy? And I said, because the alternative is, is to be unhappy. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, true. It, well, it's not a good idea. And then somebody else said, well, are you in love? I said, I'm always in love, because the best part of being in love is not the love, but the looking for it. And once you realize that, that's the best thing, really, of any. Right. Oh, yes, it's more fun. Ooh, I wonder if I could get that. And that's, a, <laughs> <laughs> You're right. that's the most fun. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. I love your quote, 
We have a world to conquer, one person at a time, starting with ourselves. That resonated with me and is what I'm about. Tell me how you came up with that. I don't know if I can. Okay. <laughs> I okay. think it's, it's pretty clear. Speaks for itself. <laughs> yeah. I, it's just a good idea to be alive. Yes. And at, at some point, you know, if you're born, mm-hmm. you will not one day be alive. So you don't need to be murdered. <laughs> you don't need to commit suicide and all that. You, you're going to one day, it, it comes around, you know. And so you learn to accept it. But in between that birth and that one day, there should be a wonderful life. There should be something that you do that you can say to yourself, well, I did good. I was looking just because I have, a, a, well, I'm in two museums, maybe more, but I was in a couple of museums. And when I went into the museum, I was surprised because I hadn't, I, I didn't expect it. And I saw a picture of me. And without really totally, African-American Museum in... in, in oh, um, yes, yeah. I see. And without even thinking, I just turned to say, look, grandmother, I did my job. Mm. And that's all you want to do. It's beautiful. You were there when hip-hop was born, at the inflection point between the Harlem Renaissance and the Black Arts Movement. I know of a global international African arts movement taking root where hip-hop has been. Where do you see culture evolving, or how would you like to see culture evolve? I'm, I'm with the kids, so wherever they're going. But I know that there is something beyond hip-hop. I hate to say it like this, but and I, don't, I mean no disrespect. Oh, no. But no. It's, it's finished. It, it's like jazz. It, it's already uh, its thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's going to be. You know, mm-hmm. so that's done. The kids coming across the border are going to be our next cultural, our next music, and our next poetry, our next jazz, our next spirituals. Whatever is coming next are going to be from the people and the young people mm-hmm. because the mothers and the fathers, of course, are, are coming. They have, they're, they're like the first enslaved. But the kids are dreaming of something. And if you saw those youngsters, uh, there, were, there were pictures that were, were being drawn. If you saw those youngsters standing behind those bars and they couldn't smile. So you look at the I don't know if you... I've seen some of them, yeah. yes. yes. And if you look at their faces, you know that somewhere there's a song. Yes. And I've often wondered, and it's something that it's not possible for me to know. I wonder what Jesus sang to himself as he waited on his transition on the cross. And we know he didn't smile. We know he didn't, you know. But we know that any time we're waiting on, on that level of transition, there has to be a song. And I looked at those kids' faces. I, I'm a part of another generation totally. But I know that something's going to come out of that that's going to find a way that's going to help get them over. Now, the generation before, way before me, two generations before me, saying how I got over, my soul looks back and wonders how I got over. But these youngsters are having a song somewhere in their heart and in their head, and it will come out as they come up. So I'd be incredibly interested in what they actually are, are, are giving to us. But this is where it's going to come from. And, and uh, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. I think it's going to, and it'll be around for a while. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Tori Reed. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. This is one in a series with Nikki Giovanni. 
Check back with the Los Angeles Review of Books regularly, where my podcast will continue to inspire, intrigue, and educate. And remember, live your brightest life today.